Florence Nightingale was a pioneer of public health and the founder of modern nursing. Because of Florence Nightingale, nursing is one of the most regulated and respected professions in the world. Named after her city of birth, Florence, Italy, Florence Nightingale was born on May 12, 1820, into an upper-class British family. As a woman of her time and her class, it would have been expected that she would marry, maintain a lovely home, and be a hostess. But Florence Nightingale had very different plans. Though at the time nursing was not a respected profession, Nightingale felt very called to become a nurse. At age 24, Nightingale defied her parents' expectations to marry a suitable match and left England to study at the Kaiserswerth Hospital in Dusseldorf, Germany. When she returned from Germany, she took a job as a nurse at a hospital in London, and she was eventually promoted after only a year to be head of nursing there. She improved sanitary conditions so much that she garnered a reputation as a reformer and as an advocate for public health. During the Crimean War, the British press made public the horrendous conditions of the wounded soldiers in Turkey. The army turned to Florence Nightingale for help. Sidney Herbert, Secretary at War, reached out directly to Nightingale. When Nightingale and her band of nurses arrived at Scutari, the hospital in the Crimea, they were shocked at what they found. The field hospitals were positioned on cesspools of putrid water. Patients were lying in their filth. More soldiers were dying from infections than they were from wounds sustained on the battlefield. Many of the reforms that Florence Nightingale instituted were quite revolutionary. Nightingale insisted that there be fresh air and water for all the soldiers, that recuperating soldiers receive healthy food to eat to help make them better, and that all of the bandages and sheets and blankets were adequately laundered each day. By the time she was done, Florence Nightingale had succeeded in reducing the death rate within these military hospitals by two-thirds. Known as the Angel of the Crimea, Nightingale returned to England and received a hero's welcome, a medal from Queen Victoria, and a gift of $250,000. She devoted the rest of her life to effecting change in medical care. In 1860, Florence Nightingale founded at St. Thomas Hospital in London the Nightingale Training School for Nurses. She was a pioneer in the use of cutting-edge statistical methods of the time to design hospitals and medical systems to maximize the health of the community at large. This really helped her to make her message known to the parliamentarians and government agencies who would make important decisions about hospitals and health care. In her later years, Nightingale was officially honored by Germany, France, Norway, and numerous prestigious British societies. She died at her London home on August 13, 1910. The fact that we have a nursing profession today is in large part thanks to the work of Florence Nightingale. Well, I think if that song existed during Florence Nightingale's days, it might have been her prayer and her theme song. Heaven, let your light shine through me. In fact, she was known as the Lady of the Lamp because she literally carried a light from from bedside to bedside to bring the, the, the care and the love of Jesus, her faith, to those that she taught how to nurse, taught how to even invent this new industry. See, she grew up as a person of privilege. And because of that, nursing was considered well, well beneath her and her societal state. But she felt called to be a helper, a healer. And so despite her parents' objections, she went and got educated in what it meant to be a, a healer. In doing so, she spoke multiple languages and she invented what we know today as statistical analysis used in the medical field. 
revolutionary practices, stepping outside of her comfort zone, considered a, a, a relative heretic to her place in society, yet she was a trailblazer that transformed the world. In fact, she so changed what was happening in the private healthcare industry that the government took note of it. She was so impacting and calling other people into this care for the hurting and the sick. See, in those days, only the elite had access to a hospital. But even then, often those giving you care were often widows or nuns with no real trained skills. And she felt called to change all of that. The evidence of her work in the private healthcare industry was so significant that the British government was called her to come help them down in Turkey because 8,000 veterans who were wounded in the, in the Crimean War were dying at horrible rates, more dying in the, in the clinics than were dying in the battlefield. So Florence Nightingale traveled with 34 nurses to find 18,000 veterans in Turkey. And she was shocked at the conditions at every conceivable level. She began to revolutionize it. During that time, she would see 3,000 of those patients die. But she would drop the overall mortality rate by two-thirds. And she worked 20 hours a day going bedside to bedside with a lamp to care, to love, to make sure the standards that she had set were put in place. And she was known as all of the veterans and all of the patients as the Lady of the Lamp, bringing hope. She concocted, and again, if you're a doctor, you probably know how to say this better than me, but brucellosis and uh, whatever that uh, condition was would haunt her the rest of her life. In fact, her doctors told her, you got to go home, you got to go home. She stayed an additional 21 months there until the last member of the army returned home. And yet she would suffer from the consequences of, of those illnesses for the rest of her life. But what motivated Florence Nightingale? Well, one of her favorite verses was the response Mary had to Gabriel when Mary learned that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. This was kind of her life verse. It was the verse that I want to be a maidservant of God. I want to accomplish God's purpose. I want to bring his light and his healing and his hope to the world around me. It's what motivated her. It's what drove her. It's what made her a trailblazer. But there was another verse that impacted many people of faith in different ways, and that came from a parable Jesus told. Jesus said, hey, when you visit somebody in prison, you're visiting me. When you care for the sick, you're caring for me. And one day you'll come to me and say, when did we see you, Lord, in prison? By the way, God, what are you in for? God, when do we see you in the hospital? And he says, whenever you've done these unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And this became a revolutionary idea that regardless of people's religious belief, regardless of their background, every human being is sacred. And when you care for sacred human beings, you're caring and loving and serving the God who made you. In fact, there were many. In fact, as you heard in that video, she got a, a royal red cross from the Queen of England, got $250,000, and she took all that money and put it into a school. And that school became a school for training nurses and it became a profession that wasn't just something that you didn't look forward to or look down upon. It was one that suddenly was esteemed and transformed the Western world. In fact, there were many after her who were followers of Jesus who also found their inspiration from the Bible, like Dr. Simpson. You may not have heard Dr. Simpson before, but Dr. James Young Simpson, he hated the fact that when people were going through surgery, they were awake, sawing off limbs. And he's like, we have got to find a way to care for people in a deeper way so they're not going through so much pain. So he was reading in the book of Genesis, 
In the book of Genesis, it says that before God performed an operation on Adam, he fell into a deep sleep. And God took out one of his ribs, which medically, by the way, it's one of the few um, pieces of the human body that will actually regenerate. If you want to go look that up, that's interesting. So God takes the one piece of the human body that regenerate out, but he put him to sleep before he did surgery. This so struck Dr. Simpson that he and several other doctors said, we've got to find a way to put people to sleep before we have surgery on them or, you know, saw off things or whatever it is we're doing. So they began to, he and two other buddies, experiment with different types of chemicals to see how they could put people to sleep to develop what we now know as anesthesia. So one day, as he writes in his journal, they finally stumbled across chloroform. And he and his buddies were sitting at the kitchen table trying out their new chemicals. And he said, and suddenly we found a joyful and humorous mood set about the table, and then we collapsed until morning. When we awoke, we realized we think we had discovered something that could be used, anesthesia. And this man, again, was motivated by his faith in Jesus and caring for people to take them out of pain to develop what we now know as chloroform. Well, it was Florence Nightingale's work as the Lady of the Lamp in the private healthcare industry that allowed God to call her into the government healthcare industry to try and make a difference and to try and really change the world for the good. So today I thought we'd do, since we've looked at some historic characters, I thought we'd look at someone in our church who's tried to do that very thing. So I'd like you to give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Bob McDonald as he tells his story. Bob, come on down. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Good to see you. So, Bob, for those who don't know your background, tell us a little bit about what got you passionate. Um, you ended up being the Secretary of Veterans Affairs uh, of the United States. But what got you passionate about even pursuing that in your background? First of all, I have to say that I'm humbled to be on this stage with you. And um, uh, this is a real blessing. And what you do every, every day, Chad, is a real blessing to all of us. Um, throughout my life, I've, I've uh, kind of lived a life of purpose, whether it was being in the Boy Scouts, uh, wanting to help other people at all times, uh, deciding that I wanted to go to West Point when I was in sixth grade, uh, going to West Point, uh, graduating, becoming an airborne infantry uh, ranger army officer, um, joining Procter & Gamble, whose purpose is to improve the lives of the world's consumers, trying to reach out and reach more consumers. Um, and then, of course, getting the call from the White House uh, was a great opportunity to continue that service. Well, I remember um, thinking to myself, you know, Bob's CEO of P&G, and he's, uh, he's moved from CEO to secretary, and it's kind of a lateral transfer. So you actually <laughs> became a secretary for another portion of your life. What, what, what is that like when the president calls you? Like, how would he know to call you, so this was Obama, and to consider you to step into the, to the largest healthcare industry in world history? Well, first, as you can imagine, the president never calls you. Uh, <laughs> they, they, the, the, um, the president, you, know, you never want to say no to the president. So um, I had, I had um, known President Obama because of work I had done with Procter & Gamble and being the chairman of the U.S. China Business Council. So I got a call from uh, Valerie Jarrett, who worked for the president, and said, you know, would you consider? And um, given uh, my faith, given my, my life, the thing that dawned on me suddenly was, oh, my gosh, this is what God has prepared me to do. This is, this is the reason I went to West Point. This is the reason I was an infantry officer. This is the reason I went to Procter & Gamble and learned how to care for you know, seven and a half billion people a day using at least one Procter & Gamble product on the planet was to bring all of this to the VA and to veterans. 
And you had, uh, we kind of jumped back to this time when you were an Army Ranger, you had quite the adventures back then, so you've been used to taking on difficult challenges. Uh, tell me about your parachute incident that happened early in your career. Well, uh, military training is dangerous, and um, uh, I was in the Airborne Unit, the 2nd Airborne Division, and in order to qualify, you have to, you have to jump uh, periodically to keep that qualification. And one day we were jumping, and um, I, had a, I was a captain, I had a colonel next to me, and he had never uh, ridden a steerable parachute before. He mistakenly st steered his parachute under mine, which caused mine to collapse. Because if, if a parachute's underneath yours, there's no airflow, and yours collapses. So we landed together. But uh, the, the, Meaning the, you uh, landed on him? Uh, together, side by side. We, uh, on the way down, I said a lot of things to him. <laughs> And I have to say, I, I've, I've prayed and asked for forgiveness for all those things. Um, but as we were coming, that, the nice thing about the military is, 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 he was senior to me. As long as I said, sir, I could say just about anything. So I said a lot of things, and I said, sir, and we landed together. And he apologized. Uh, he was what we called a five-jump commando. He had gone to jump school 20 years before, done his five jumps, gotten his wings, but hadn't jumped since. And since then, we'd introduced this steerable parachute, which allowed him to steer and steal my air, which I didn't appreciate. Wow. So what, um, like, why take this job? I mean, when you think about, you know, there's news and there's all kinds of differences of political opinion, but even back in, in when you took the job under Obama, there was still equally, you know, heat under with the VA, what was going on. It seemed like a thankless job. It seemed like no matter what would happen, you're going to be criticized from all sides. So what made you decide... Of all the things you could have done with your life, yes, I want to I, I step into this thing. Well, as I said, when, when, when I first got the call, it really dawned on me that this, is, this was God's plan, that this has been the preparation that he had put me through to prepare me for this. And um, when I was going through the Senate confirmation, uh, Richard Burr, a uh, senator from North Carolina, was the ranking member. And I remember during the confirmation, he said, McDonough, what? You know, you can go, go we were going to move to Florida. You can go live in Florida and play golf. Why would you want to do this? And I thought about that phrase that we often say in the military, which is, um, if not me, who? Hmm. If not me, who? If, it's, if you're not going to do it, who is? And I think probably every, every um, Christian person, every person with a sense of purpose would say the same thing and do the same thing. And what about your faith? Like when you were, I don't know, praying about that decision. So obviously it was reflecting on the past and things that God had been doing in your past to prepare you. Were there any like, uh, you know, key verses that struck you or key senses of, you know, it's, it's, I'm thinking about it, seems right, but now I'm going to engage. Any key concepts? To me, to me uh, the verse that always resonates in my head is uh, John 15, 13. Um, uh, you know, there's no greater love mm -hmm. than to sacrifice your life for another and mm. what a great example was provided to us by Jesus sure. um, of doing that. And when you think of um, uh, men and women in combat, mm -hmm. uh, when heroism occurs, heroism typically occurs not necessarily because of the ideals of the country or things like that. Those are clearly important. But um, it occurs because you don't want to let your comrades down. It's oh. because you, you feel this bond with those around you. Um, and it, it's what animates all of us and what animates me today. You know, I think of, I always think of that closing scene in, in Saving Private Ryan when um, 
the older Matt Damon goes to mm -hmm. the grave of, of Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, and turns to the people in his family and says, um, tell me that I've earned it, mm. uh, what you've done for me. Mm. And throughout my military career and my time at the VA, people would often say to me, why are veterans always so humble? And it's very easy. It's um, because for those of us who are veterans, I never served in combat. Mm. Um, for those who have served in combat, they know there are those without arms and legs. Mm. Uh, for those without arms and legs, they know, and it basically goes all the way back to the cemetery huh. where um, people paid the ultimate price. And when you think about that ultimate price, it energizes you every day to work to earn what those people have done for you. So every day in my life, I, I think about that. Mm. I hope I'm earning it. Well, I remember when I came to visit you in your office, whatever it was, four years ago, and uh, I remember, in fact, I brought the picture because I've had here from the, the official secretary or whatever, photographer uh, looking out your window at the oh, White you're House. You're standing next to the White House. Yeah, I'm standing next to the White House, yeah. Um, Future residents, maybe. <laughs> Hope not. Um, maybe I'll feel called to it. I need a burning bush maybe to, to feel called to it. But um, when, you, um, when you think about that, I remember you taking a tour of the facility. And what about your personal mission statement? And I also remember you showing me Abraham Lincoln's kind of motto that was on the side of the building. What about those two kind of came together for you? Yeah, if you, know, if you go to the um, Lincoln Memorial, um, which I suggest everyone do, and, and you walk up toward the statue of Abraham Lincoln, on the left-hand side... Um, is the Gettysburg Address, which arguably is one of the best speeches ever mm -hmm. given. On the right-hand side is uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address. And in his second inaugural address, President Lincoln said, we have to care for him who's born the battle, his widow and his orphan. Recognizing that if we are going to stay strong as a country, we have to care for those who bore, born the battle. Sure. And... Um, this, this became also true to me when I go to church on Sunday because I would go to St. John's uh, Church, which is called the President's Church. It's right across from the White House. And in the back of the church is the Lincoln Pew. Hmm. And uh, they call it the Lincoln Pew because on Sunday night, every Sunday night during the Civil War, President Lincoln would walk across Lafayette Park. Hmm. This is a small pew. He'd park his six-foot-plus frame in this pew, and he would pray for the Union and he walked back to the White House. No entourage, nothing. In the Civil War, 750,000 Americans lost their lives. If you take that over the four years of the war, that's 513 Americans losing their lives every single day. Mm. The United States, we did not expect that kind of carnage yeah. uh, to occur. And of the, of the veterans who fought the war, 50% of them were immigrants. And they had come from their other countries, they had fought the war, and the government felt a responsibility to take care of those veterans afterwards, sure. to train them in vocations, and that was the beginning of the VA. Wow. I remember, you know, just as you read that to me, walking the road that day, that um, you felt that the history, because I know you're a big history buff and a big war buff as well, you know, sort of the study of the history of that, that you felt like you were kind of... Um, you know, kind of the baton had been passed to you that had gone back for many times of really caring for that, for that, uh, um, the widow and the orphan, as you mentioned there. Well, I was reading um, one of the statements that you made 
In fact, I remember one day you were on the news and I saw kind of you getting criticized by all sides and being attacked by all sides. And, and so I texted That's you. That's pretty typical. Yeah, yes. Um, and for those you know, Bob is a regular attender of our church for many years. We've been friends for years and um, usually attend. We have like, because we have four services, sometimes it feels we have four churches. So you're usually attender at our E50. And um, I remember kind of seeing you on the news that day and I texted you a verse from Nehemiah. And the, the verse, in case you don't remember, was uh, sand, it's from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is doing this great work for God. He's trying to fix a lot of broken walls and broken systems and broken all kinds of stuff. And Sanballat and Geshem are these two guys who are kind of opposition trying to distract him. And so the verse I texted you was, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But, I, they, thought to, but I, they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, hey, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should I cease the good work to leave and go down to you? And I just kind of encourage you to stay focused on what God called you, not distractions. How did you really do that day to day under that kind of onslaught of criticism and attack? Well, it's difficult. Um, What we did was we focused on the mission, Uh, you know, the mission of, of caring for veterans, getting more doctors, more nurses, more clinical space, more money. Um providing care for veterans, focusing on that. But then I also was able to hire uh, people to work with me who, uh, like me, didn't need the job. This wasn't about political power. This was about people coming into Washington, doing a job, and then going home, mm-hmm. not, yeah. not living gotcha. there, going right. home. Like Cincinnatus, uh, <laughs> right. the sure. famous revolutionary um, uh, society. And... Um, as a result of that, I, I told everybody, and we all agreed that we only had one thing here, and that was to care for veterans. And, you know, yes, we would be criticized. We would be criticized by those who didn't want the VA system to work, because if it did, they were afraid that would lead to nationalized medicine. We were criticized by those who um, wanted to privatize the VA system. We were, criti- you know, so we got criticism from, from all standpoints. I have mm-hmm. to say, though, um, Generally, there were very, very few of our of the politicians who um, who didn't really care about veterans. Yeah, uh, not many were veterans. Sure, but but generally, that's one thing the American polit- political class can agree on. Hmm. In one of your uh, personal statements, you define success for yourself. You said you have to define success for yourself based on your purpose and your values, and not based on someone else's. Starting over is sometimes the path to even greater delivery of your purpose. So give us an example of how you're able to keep your own focus with all those different differing voices coming at you. Well, I think uh, I, I, um, when I talk to my grandchildren or my children, I, I say, please, please don't let society define success for you. My first uh, platoon in the 82nd Airborne Division was about 30 uh, soldiers uh, who had not graduated from high school and had been told by society that they weren't successful. Hmm. My job was to um, get that innate quality in them of wanting to be successful and helping them understand how they could be. And, and what happens, I think, too often is, is people think a title is success. They think a certain amount of money is success. Uh, people at P&G used to say to me, well, you know, I want to be vice president of Tiddlywinks or whatever. And I'd say, yeah, but by the time you're ready for that job, uh, the job won't exist anymore. Uh, mm. You know, don't sell yourself short. Don't have your purpose in life be a title mm. or a position or money or some materialistic thing, but rather try to get something done yeah. that will make a difference to the people around you. 
I mean, if you think about what the Bible says, the Bible says we are inherently spiritual beings having a physical experience. And if you try and make your definition as a spiritual being something physical, be that title, be that uh, the size of your territory, you know, it's ultimately not going to satisfy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and don't be afraid to start over. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I was at West Point, uh, I was uh, one of the ranking cadets and graduated toward the top of my class. And when I got out, I was a second lieutenant, like everybody else. Uh, I went to ranger school. We took our ranks off. We were all rangers, lowest form of life on earth until you graduate. Uh, <laughs> after that, then you go to Procter & Gamble. I, I took the job at Procter & Gamble. It wasn't the highest salary offer. In fact, uh, I gave up a position at another company to be like an assistant to the president. Hmm. And at Procter & Gamble, everybody starts at the bottom. Hmm. But, but if, if the purpose is right, if the values are right... Um, and you have a growthful situation like that, uh, you're going to grow even more. Um, so you just can't be afraid to start over. And how did you, I know, um, while you're in the middle of that, you know, it can be a lonely place at times, you know, when you're being criticized from all sides, and when you're trying to, you know, kind of theoretically it's good to start over. What are the maybe daily, monthly, um, weekly spiritual practices you had that just tried to stay connected to God, to purpose, to, you know, a true voice in the middle of all those other voices? Well, I've, I've, been, I've been blessed. I've been married to a, a, a devout Christian woman who taught me caring uh, for 42 years, and so I give Deanne uh, all the credit for that. But we, we try to um, make sure we have periodic uh, studies. In fact, we're thrilled with the new media um, and live streaming that's going to occur here. Um, I try to, um, to read um, uh, biblical books. Um, we just try to stay grounded. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the part that always sticks with me is there's a part of the West Point Cadet Prayer. Um, I was a lesson reader and acolyte at, at West Point, and it helped me to choose the harder right rather than the easier wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, that has stuck with me, and I... I talk about that a lot because it always seems like the right thing to do is the harder thing to do yeah and if something's feeling awfully easy um it's probably wrong Mm. and um i'm i'm proud of the procter and gamble company for you know the year i joined 1980 we withdrew a product from the marketplace um called rely which um, had not necessarily been linked to causing toxic shock syndrome, but because we couldn't prove that nobody who used the product got it, we withdrew the product from the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why the Procter & Gamble company has been around almost 200 years, is because of doing the right thing all the time. Mm. I remember, like you talk about being humbled being on the stage, right? I remember it would be very humbling. I'd, I'd call or text you and you'd say, hey, Chad, I was just listening to your message last week, and yeah, it was very helpful and very challenging. And so the idea that uh, as your kind of central base here in Cincinnati, that we could be a spiritual uh, source of prayer for you and a source of um, you know, encouragement for you was, was always good. I, I remember when I came to visit you that one um, weekend, I met your like second in command. Uh, I can't remember what her name was, but I remember she just talked about one of the challenges you had was increasing staff and retaining staff. And so she spoke about specifically she was kind of ready for her next thing to start over, and you create a vision for her that kind of allowed her to sign back up again. So tell me a little bit how you tried to cast that vision personally with folks that maybe were, hey, this isn't worth it. This job is a thankless job, even though I'm doing good work, but I'm going to get criticized. How did you personally try and take what was your core um, motivating principle and inspire someone like her? Yeah, I was very fortunate in that the in the fall of 2014, when I just when I took over, um, Scott Pelley, who was a friend of mine, we both have a share and interest in history, um, 
was doing 60 Minutes, and um, we volunteered to do 60 Minutes. And Scott had said to me that he um, had never been to West Point, and I offered years before to give him a tour of West Point. So I called him. I said, Scott, this is a great time to go take a look at West Point. So um, the deputy uh, secretary actually was um, uh, my West Point classmate, Sloan Gibson, and so I, I wanted him to be part of it. So Sloan and I went to West Point, and we did a 60 minutes segment with, with Scott. Because of that, I got all kinds of calls and letters and emails uh, wanting to come on board. And, um, and we interviewed uh, everyone and, and um, were able to attract them. I think the, the thing that's uh, different from what we did versus what government usually does is in government, like in some businesses, you have a certain number of positions and you look for people to fill those positions. What I was more about was I've got these players, these great athletes. Now I need to create an organization structure that takes advantage of them. So we created a veterans experience office first time, hired a guy who had um, run McDonald's in Europe and knew human-centered design, huh. which is a technique used to improve customer service. We created a strategic partnerships office Hired a guy, West Point graduate, came in, led that. During the time, we were able to get over $58 million of, of money and support for veterans. Um, so create the organization structure to match the players you have and the strategies you have rather than just sticking to the organization structure you're given. Gotcha. And I remember when I came to visit, you said, uh, this is going to take five to seven years to get this whole plan laid out. Um, so we're probably not going to get the rewards of what we're fixing um, until after you know, we're gone or whether or not we get asked to do it again. What, what were, you gave me some examples then, but what were some of the obstacles you faced when you think about you know, bureaucracy and those things? I remember you saying like every time you turned over another rock, there was some outdated system that had to be revolutionized. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, many of the best practices of business had kind of uh, washed over government without being um, accepted. In fact, I discovered I could make more money as a COBOL programmer, this is a kind of computer language programmer, working for the VA because we use COBOL to manage the $185 billion budget we had. COBOL was a language I learned to program at West Point in 1971, very outdated. But because all the COBOL programmers were dead, we were paying enormous sums of money wow. to get people to do it. Um, so, I mean, things like that. But um, uh, I, th I think that in the end, um, it was getting people to recognize that our, our purpose and our focus was to care for the veteran, and we had to do everything we could to do that. And I'm, I'm uh, happy that the team that I worked with by December of 2016, we had same-day access to primary medical care and mental health care at every VA facility, same-day access. Mm. And I, there aren't many medical systems where you can get that. That was our biggest task. And I know as you think about people who, like I remember you saying, you know, all of the politicians on both sides care for the veteran, um, but you were also surprised at um, oh, the, yeah. the amount of opposition you got, even from conservatives, because even though um, yeah. they cared about the veteran, they didn't want a business guy uh, who to necessarily validate or fix a government system because it might um, you know, reinforce socialism. So how did, how did that play out? How was your kind of personal disappointment in the two-facedness that often happened there, and how did you deal with that? Well, my, my desire was to um, 
have no ownership of the plan to transform the VA. I wanted everybody to feel ownership for that, not just me. So I actually was the only cabinet secretary, I don't know if this is in history, but one of the few cabinet secretaries who went to both our Senate committee and our House committee and asked for a hearing. I said, I really want a hearing. Normally you don't ask for that. You get called that's, for it. <laughs> that's considered punishment. And, um, uh, but I asked for a hearing, and in the Senate, Johnny Isaacson, the, the, the committee chairman, and Richard Blumenthal, the ranking member, we put on the hearing, and we went through the transformation plan, and Johnny and Dick actually assigned senators to help us along the way. It was a fantastic team effort. Hmm. We made a lot of progress. In the House, we had a, a, a chairman of our committee in the House who recognized what I was trying to do. He recognized that what I was trying to do was make him part of the solution, oh, gotcha. not part of the problem. That many couldn't criticize anymore, sure. and so he refused to hold the hearing. Huh. Um, so I, I give you an example. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that drives you crazy. So one morning I had a, something called the Christian Science Monitor Breakfast, and many in the audience may even remember this, and they get all the um, journalists from Washington, D.C. there, and you have a cabinet member speak, and I was talking about how we were changing the, the experience for veterans, how, what we were measuring. I talked about human-centered design and how great companies like Procter & Gamble and Disney and others use human-centered design. And I talked about how the um, unfortunate focus of journalists only on wait times was getting in the way of other measures that were important, like effectiveness of care, efficiency of care and so forth. And uh, as I was going through this, I was describing that, you know, usually when, you, when you're your primary care physician, you finish your annual physical, you then schedule the next year's physical. Mm -hmm. But we at the VA wouldn't do that because we didn't want a 12-month wait time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's lunacy, right. absolute lunacy. Anyway, as I was talking through this and talking about what P&G does and what Disney does, um, I won't mention who, but somebody ran out of the room Headline says McDonald compares veteran uh, uh, medical appointments to wait times at Disney. Disney, I've never seen that. Which, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and what really galled me is the person who wrote that wasn't a veteran. Hmm. And it never served our country. That, that really galled me. Anyway, then every member of Congress uh, in the opposition party, I was a Republican in the Democratic administration, but every uh, felt a need to demonstrate their self-righteous indignation at my statement. And one of them who did was a congressman I knew. Actually, I'd worked with him when I was at P&G on tax policy. He went to Miami University, uh, was in a leadership position. And I called him and I said, what's going on? You know me. You know I'm a veteran. You know I wouldn't say something like that, or certainly not with that intent. And he said, Bob, he said, yeah, get used to this. This is just, just politics. And I said, you know, if this, if this is politics, I don't want anything to do with it, because to me, character is more important mm. than political expediency. Yeah. Mm. Well, speaking of that, I remember, you know, we think about some people take jobs, and, you, and you, you hear about stuff in politics, like, you know, people who make 100 grand a year, and after five years, they're, they're multimillionaires, <laughs> you know, you wonder, like, wonder what happens there. But I know I heard kind of, you know, secondarily from friends of yours that for you to take this position was a financial sacrifice to step off boards and things. And that I think you even joked that the amount of money that this position paid was less than the cost of your apartment in D.C. or something. Um, so for, for those who maybe who are motivated by position or power or money, um, 
back to your Jesus example, what is it about this that you said, you know, I want to I take a, a season of my life and, and sacrifice um, for people who've sacrificed far more. How did you kind of internalize that, that, that uh, business decision or that career decision for this, this season of your life? Actually, for me, the decision was relatively easy, as I said, because it was consistent with my purpose and no sacrifice is, is too great. The biggest challenge was for the family and particularly for Deanne, for my wife. You know, we were trying to move her mother to live with us. Uh, we had just bought a house in Florida. We were going to retire there. Um, it put everything on hold. It was incredibly disruptive. We had to um, sell all kinds of stock and uh, divorce ourselves from various activities, divorce ourselves from certain financial situations. It is true we paid more in rent than, than we actually made. Um, but you know what? Uh, it, it was worth it. I know Deanne would say it was worth it, um, and we would do it again. And, and I'm not done yet. So, I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the Lord has in sure, store for me sure. next. So, um, but it is a sacrifice. It is a, a, a deep sacrifice. I think back to your point that anything worth doing, the hard stuff is stuff it's doing. And I remember when I was there, you, you introduced me to these challenge coins. I remember you handed me this coin, and it's got your name on it. And uh, tell me a little bit about the background behind these challenge coins and um, kind of in the... In the in the military experience, and for me, every time I think of this, I think of the challenge that you took on, and uh, as I saw it, you know, in my office, I would pray for you that God would give you the wisdom to take on those challenges. So for those who have never seen a challenge coin, how are these used? And I appreciate your, your prayers, Chad. Um, the coins are a, a military tradition. Um, in the military, uh, unlike in business, you don't have the kind of financial rewards and other things, stock options and financial incentives. Um, and as a result, these coins have taken on a uh, unique, um, uh, unique value in that uh, a commander would have a coin um, representing their, themselves and their unit. And when a good deed was done, they would give the individual the coin. And then uh, the, the challenge idea is later that night, if you're out in a bar or somewhere, you challenge the person if they've got your coin and uh, if they don't, they buy, they buy the drinks. Um, I've gotten a lot of drinks. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, uh, my coins, I have so many coins now that uh, I couldn't possibly carry them around. Um, but but it, is, it is a great tradition. It's a lot of fun. So if you think about um, maybe inclusion, what, maybe two things. One, what are the things that you started that you're proud have worked out? What are the things that you have regrets and you go, boy, I wish I could have done more in that area? Because I know all of us, we look at areas of our life and we have kind of high points and low points. What are some of the high and low points you think about? I think the, the high points are, is the amount of legislation that we teed up. Um, a lot of it didn't get um, voted on uh, before President Obama left office and President Trump came in, but it was all teed up. Hmm. And so um, it was funny, Johnny Isaacson, the the Republican head of our Senate committee said, Bob, don't expect us to vote on this. We're going to wait till the Republican president gets in office, and then we're going to vote on it. And of course, in the huh. first few weeks, they did. Huh. But it was appeals reform, uh, which was important. It was accountability so that we could hold accountable employees um, within the VA. It was um, things like um, clinic hours, more doctors, more, more nurses. Um, all of which was, was very, very important to the future, and I'm, and I'm proud that the VA continues on that glide path today. I think the greatest, um, greatest frustration 
is that if you looked at the VA as a business, it's the largest healthcare system in the world other than maybe the UK healthcare system. Um, it would be a Fortune 9 company. It's bigger than P&G. P&G is like Fortune 25. This is Fortune 9. Yet we change the leadership every three years. Of the, of the 10 secretaries of the VA since its inception as a secretary position, I think uh, more than half have been forced to resign for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, I auditioned at Procter & Gamble for 25, 30 years, years before I became CEO. It's senseless to change the leadership that frequently. Okay. And um, I would love to see it become more regularized, uh, maybe as a quasi-government organization, mm. but, but at least with constant leadership. Mm. Um, and how, for those of us who aren't going to necessarily go into the healthcare industry or going to go into government but have a challenge before us, what would you encourage somebody in the role Jesus, the Bible, and faith played in your life and might encourage them in their life to show why Jesus, God, and the Bible have been a critical part of being able to endure these kind of challenges? Um, I th you know, I, to me, Jesus is the best leadership example I have. Um, and, and as I said, that verse, John 15, 13, to me, describes what I should try to seek to do every single day. And I don't think life is over. But I also think that you don't need to be the Secretary of the VA. You don't need to be President of the United States. You don't need to be Martin Luther King. I like Bobby Kennedy's statement that if you drop pebbles in water and you watch the ripple effects of those pebbles over mm -hmm. time, those ripple effects will come down and they can knock down the, the mightiest walls, huh. and particularly when they're inspired by God. Um, and so any one of us can have that impact. And oftentimes I'd say to myself, after working at, at P&G all day, coming home, I'd say, you know, did I touch and improve at least one life today? Did I make a difference for at least one person? Mm -hmm. and, and maybe it's the lowliest person sure. that the Bible talks about. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we're here. Yeah. We're here to bring God's kingdom to earth. We're here to try to help other people. It's not about us. It's about our love of the Lord. It's about our love of family, about our love of friends. Well, can we thank Bob for just his story and his thank service? You. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, I don't know what challenges you're facing, but maybe you're facing some choices where you have an easier choice or a harder choice. And we've kind of been indoctrinated by our culture to always pick the easier choice. But I love the challenge. Uh, there's a guy in the Bible named Joshua who was going through a major transition from Moses. And God says to him, I want you to be strong and courageous, for I am with you. I want you to be strong and very courageous, where I will not leave you or forsake you. I want you to meditate on my word day and night. Do not turn to the left or to the right. It's such a great speech. It's in Joshua chapter 1. I've, I've gone over it and over it over my mind. And what does it look like to take the difficult challenge and, and to look for opportunities in your family, in your marriage, in your career, to give of yourself, to sacrifice of yourself to serve other people. So I want to pray, I want to give you a quick announcement, and then uh, we'll continue our series next week as we look at Galileo. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for the, the way in which you have motivated and prompted and nudged and called different people with different skills and different places in their spiritual journey to be about the common good, to be about encouraging people, to be about inspiring people, to be about fixing things that others can be loved and served. 
And we thank you, Florence Nightingale, in that verse that challenged her, that when we serve the least of these, we're actually serving our very maker and creator. So, Father, may you be the motivation of our life, and may we be a church that's filled with people of service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Just one quick announcement before you go, because I know many of you have asked. We are one week away from announcing that our app is going to go live. And that is going to have 10 to 15 years of messages. So messages like you heard today, you can listen to again. You can send a link on. So the app is going to go live next week. And then if you look around this room right now, there's about 10 things have changed since last week. Um, So quick little, you know, which one's different. We finished up our screen, uh, covered up. The shower curtains are going to go soon. we got some drapery coming in. Uh, we have live cameras. If you see behind you, you've got actually some volunteers who are sitting in a camera to my right, a uh, camera to my left. We've got uh, Turner Construction. has been here all week creating these new booths to hold the camera. Down by our sound booth, we have a third camera. Um, our teams have been working, training volunteers. We're now up to a six to nine camera shoot. We're going to be going to live stream here in the next uh, you know, 45 days, 60 days, uh, as we work out licensing issues because part of the music that we play at both our equipping service and our exploring service. We've got to make sure everything's done you know, appropriately and ethically. So again, very, very exciting time. And so I know many of you, like uh, Bob has called over the last couple of years, you know, we travel or we, have, we live in different places or we're, we're serving God in D.C. during this time. The ability for you and your family to watch our services live is coming very, very soon. So if you want to be part of that, you want to serve in the children's ministry as we continue to see our, our services expand, if you want to learn how to operate a camera or you know, call cues on a, on a as a producer, there are so many opportunities to serve, and I want to thank each one of you for your giving. I want to thank you so much for your serving and the way in which we can take the great things God's doing here and even make it available to those at a larger scale. So thanks so much. We'll see you next week as we dig into Galileo. Thanks so much.